Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting and pay respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are with us today. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection and it's my great pleasure to have Kemi Nekfapil with us today on the Dietitian Connection podcast. Kemi is one of Australia's leading credentialed coaches for female executives and entrepreneurs. She's an author and a highly sought after international speaker. Kemi has studied leadership and purpose at the Gross National Health National Happiness Centre in Bhutan and trained with Dr. Brené Brown to become a certified DARE to lead facilitator. She's working with teams and organisations to create daring leaders and courageous cultures. Kemi is also a facilitator of the Hunger Project Australia and a regular interviewer of industry icons, including Elizabeth Gilbert, Martha Beck and Marie Folio. And she hosts the number one ranking podcast, The Shift Series. With a level of compassion and wisdom only gained through extraordinary life experience, Kemi is a powerful advocate for connected value-based living and it's such a pleasure. Welcome to the uh, Dietitian Connection podcast, Kemi. It's great to have you here. It's an absolute delight to be here with you, Marie. And we're so looking forward to hosting you at Dietitians Unite. Um, thanks so much for chatting with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your new book, Power, um, going through it a second time and doing all the exercises. I'd love for you to just share. I mean, there's so many powerful stories within Power, Kemi. I'd love for you to just share some uh, stories from your early childhood and your first lessons in Power. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you've enjoyed the book and that you're going through it a second time. That's what I'm hearing a lot of people say. They're sort of processing it the first first read and then actually actioning it on the second read. That's beautiful to hear. Um, Look, my experience of power growing up was one of powerlessness. So I grew up in the 1970s. I'm not afraid to say my age. I was born in 1974. I'm 47 years old and in perimenopause. Um, and, they're with you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We're all there or we're going there or we've been there. So there you go. Um, and I grew up um, as a child of middle-class Nigerian parents. And at that time, there were tens of thousands of Nigerian children born to middle-class Nigerian parents, fostered out to white families in England. So from the age of two weeks until I was 13, I had five primary carers and I would go with my mother um, in the holidays. So I had six primary carers. I always sort of say I had six windows into how different families operate, which definitely speaks to how I am as a coach. But yeah, my experience of power was one of powerlessness. I was told either within some of those families or by society, being a black person navigating white spaces, that I had no power and that I had to just be grateful for wherever I was. And I believed that. And you talk about some experiences with other kids at the time. Um, I think it was Damien, if I got the name right, down the street. Oh, yes, Darren Page. Yes, I think we all have our nemesis in our childhood. Yeah, our childhood years. So Darren Page was, he was a bully. That's what he was. And he used racism as the way that he bullied me. And once again, 
his rhetoric and the rhetoric of his friends was just something that I believed they would run into a space and I would run out of it. Uh, or if I stayed where they were in the park, then I was kind of held captive and would try in some way sort of stand in my power and try and speak up to them. But because my internal narrative or my internal racism, to be honest, was one that they were right. I was less than them. I would be lucky to be in the park. And if they told me to get out, then I had to get out because that's what safety meant for me. And, you know, I talk about that a lot through the book, that we internalise so many of these systems that have been made to keep women, especially small. So anything from, you know, the patriarchy to racism, to misogyny, to homophobia, transphobia, there are so many systems in place that make so many of us feel that we can only navigate the world if we step into smallness. And the reason for me writing the book was, well, what about if we didn't? What if we broke apart those systems and started to decide I can live and lead wherever I want without apology? Mm. And then you also talk, talk about, I don't know if this was the, the first time you realised you had your own power, but you talk about um, the experience going shopping. Oh, <laughs> the shopping experience. Yeah. It's so funny because I could say anything now. I could talk about when I was yeah. shopping, you know. But no, there was, you know, I think we all have these de definitive moments in our childhood. So when I arrived with my fifth set of foster parents, I had been homeless for six months. So I wasn't on the streets, but I was, I did have no fixed abode. So I was sleeping on the sofas or in the spare beds of the parents of my classmates and will always be grateful for those parents for taking me in. Um, but then I actually went into care. So a lot of this fostering at the beginning wasn't government. Uh, there was no government body around it. It was very much Nigerian families finding white families. There were magazines around it in the time. It was a practice that was understood by the government, but they did not have any um, input in it. So then by the time I got homeless, became homeless, though, that was then I went into care. So then suddenly I had social workers and all those sorts of things. And I remember the next morning going shopping with my foster mum, Sue, and going to Marks and Spencers because I'm English and I love Marks and Spencers. And she asked me what colour underwear I wanted to buy. I didn't really hear her the first time she said it. And then she said it again and it didn't really compute. And then the third time she kind of said, Kemi, I'm talking to you. And she asked me the question, what colour underwear do you want, pink or multicoloured? And I just remember in that moment, looking back, I didn't have these words, but in that moment, the feeling I had was one of she's giving me a choice. She is asking me to have an opinion on some area of my life, as small as it is. And I remember in that moment thinking, if this is what choice feels like, and I would now say, if this is what power feels like, then I am not going to let go of it. This is how I want to navigate the world, knowing that I am worthy. Yeah, that gives me goosebumps. I think it's just such a, a powerful story. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, my gosh, your book just resonated with me on so many levels. I think I'm your perfect reader, perfect client. Um, I think I've always struggled with, I say my greatest weakness is my lack of self-confidence, but it also is my greatest strength because it really drives me to achieve things. Um, but you're not, not feeling worthy as a part of that process. So what was the inspiration for you behind writing Power um, and how did you gain sort of your sense of self-power? I think I've just I've skipped ahead there. And, yeah, was there any other defining moments for you? 
Well, I think that's the thing is that there are always many defining moments. I think we want personal development and professional development to be like this one moment and then it all changed. And that's really how it is. You kind of, you have the awareness, you know, I know from working with clients that sometimes it's, it's the awareness, first of all, and the awareness can be confronting, you know, just the awareness of, oh, I'm not where I wanted to be in my life or in my career, or this internal voice is sabotaging my relationships or, you know, my trajectory in whatever life I want to create for myself. So the first point is awareness. Sometimes that awareness will stay with us for years before we then actually take an action to shift it or having that awareness will be the thing that will have us take, you know, that will take us into another space where we'll meet a different kind of person who will then take us on the next bit of our journey. So for me, definitely um, at 13, having that conversation around my underwear, you know, that's a defining moment. I'm not sure that all underwear conversations are defining moments, but that was one of them. I think then for me at 16 as well, once again, being the only black person at school, teenager, I did not have a boyfriend. That is devastating when you're 16 years old. All of my friends did. I had internalized that I wasn't beautiful because I was black. I, you know, as many of us take on, beauty is only blonde and thin and white. And I wasn't that. And I remember that I spent a lot of time. Well, I... It's interesting, you know, you'll hear the stories from many people of colour. Some of us wanted to be white because that is the majority patriarchal model of power and you're fit in, you know, we try and turn ourselves inside out to fit into that very small box. So some young people of colour that had to navigate a lot of um, margin, uh, white spaces will say they wanted to be white and there are horrible stories of people bleaching their skin and all that sort of thing. I never actually wanted to change my skin colour, but I did want really long flowing hair. Like that was the ultimate for me. So then when I became a teenager, my birth mother did let me have extensions for the first time. And I had them down to like the bottom of my bottom, like just above the top of my thigh and the end of my bum. And it took 13 hours. And I did that for about 10 years until I then realized I, I want to do more with my life than spend 12 hours in a hairdressing salon. And then realizing years later, it's because you thought that was what beauty was. And part of one of my moves, not around that consciously, but, you know, as you know, um, and people will meet me on the on the um, event is that I have no hair now. Um, so I think over time we, we have these little things. And I think there's a reason why a lot of women shave off their hair or go for a shorter hair, because it's that part of stepping into I know how to play the game of what femininity should be but I'm going to learn how to play the game of being me. And that means there are certain boxes that I'm no longer willing to tick. Mm. You also talk about um, similar trying to fit in um, with when you were in acting, when you started acting classes and you didn't feel like you fitted in either world. Yeah, yeah. It was growing up and being told um, by white people all the time that black people were my were my people, even though I was also told they were bad people. So I was a little bit anxious about meeting these bad black people. And then I remember in my teenage years, I wasn't quite, I started at drama school. I was having, I was going to drama school classes at the weekend. And occasionally when you're at kind of one of those sort of imagine kind of precocious children that want to be actors on a Saturday weekend, um, drama school, college course is what I was doing. And sometimes you'll get audition and casting requests that come in. And there was one that came in for a hip hop video. And um, it was led by African and Caribbean people, the actual video. So I knew, oh, okay, this is going to be the first time that I've been around a group of black people that are not my family. These are the people. These are the people they've told me are my people. This is where I'm going to feel that I belong. And without sharing too much about the story, um, I came away from that experience not think not with what I thought I would gain from that 
But what I did gain from that experience is that I was that I was no longer going to turn myself inside out to try and fit into other places that people thought I should belong. But that in itself, that was an awareness. You know, there were still many years after that. That was kind of my early 20s where I continued to turn myself inside out to fit into boxes, to belonging spaces, because as Brene Brown talks about, belonging is so incredibly important and we will sacrifice many things for that sense of belonging. Yeah, again, I think your stories are so powerful for all of us to to think about and bring awareness to. Um, You talk about a five-step framework within your book. I know, and it's quite detailed. (laughs) There's a lot of steps in each of those frameworks, so I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but just sort of the the two-minute, if you can, summary of the framework. I can give you kind of the blue sky thinking framework (laughs) of it. One thing I knew in writing a book about power was that I had to redefine it. So I share the Oxford Dictionary definition of power, which is the ability to do something or act in a particular way. So then when we know that, we realize, oh, my goodness, we all have power. We all have the ability to act in a particular way, regardless of our ethnicity, our class, our gender, wherever we are. What our option, you know, depending on how big that realm is, may change. But we do have a choice with some of our actions. And then I thought, so how do we redefine it? Because most of us, you know, we kind of have a global example of that old form of power, that power over all I'll say is a white bloke, middle-aged, sat on a horse bare-chested. I don't think I need to say any more than that. That kind of form of power that is like, I will show you my might. And there are devastating effects of that form of power that is carrying on in the world right now. For me, I want to break down the word power into a power acronym. So P is for presence, that we need to look at what is working and what is not working in our lives. And we need to be present to the lived experiences of other people. Then there's ownership, the ability to own our stories, those we are told, those we experience, those we are witnessed, and those that we make up. And then there is wisdom, that we all have an innate wisdom and yet Some of us will outsource our lives all the time because we don't trust ourselves and our own opinion around what it is we need to be doing. E is for equality, that we must all contribute to global equality or inequality in the best way that we can, in a way that we feel pulled to. We can't do all the things. We have to be mindful of what can I do. But I think that we miss the internal conversation that some of us have around our own equality, that we find ourselves with people or in spaces where we believe that we are unequal and that is not true, but it's a lesson to learn over a long time. And then finally is responsibility, that we need to take responsibility for our lives because no one is coming to save us. So we're responsible for the actions we take, the actions we don't take, and if needed, we are responsible for our healing because if any of us have had anything happen to us where there has been a defined perpetrator in place, they are rarely going to be responsible for our healing. They did the wounding, but we are responsible for our healing when we're ready. So that's the five, um, five-step five power principle acronym. Mm-hmm. So if we start with presence, and I think I'm, again, your perfect client because I'm always sort of, you know, that busy, you know, always doing something. Um, but, you know, I really struggle with slowing down and being present. So what steps do you take to make sure that you're being present? Because I know from what I've heard and <laughs> seen you do on social media, I think you're really good at that. Yeah, well, I actually, one of the quotes that's really resonated with women from the book is the world does not need more busy women. It needs present and powerful women. 
And so I have practices that I've been engaged in for, well, decades now. So I am a meditator and I have been doing yoga for 25 years, both of those. It's a practice. I'm not perfect at any of them. We're not meant to be perfect at them, but they're spaces to slow down, check in, to see how I'm going, how I'm feeling. And I do believe that flexibility in our body allows for flexibility in our mind. I, I believe that our mind and body are connected. And it's very interesting that for so many women, our hips are generally very, very tight and we hold a lot of our trauma in that area. So the more that we can open up our hips, which is so hard. I'm a runner as well. So I kind of, I'm sort of creating te creating tension and trying to release the tension all the time. But um, there for me, I'm also a journaler. So just writing it out, um, just writing out what's there, challenges that have come up. I ask myself my own questions, you know, kind of what would I do if kind of coaching questions to myself. I do gratitude journaling, journaling, sometimes affirmations. My journaling practice changes depending on the season. Am I on holiday? Am I not? Is there a big project going on where I feel very vulnerable? So I'm writing a bit more, um, but journaling. And then the final one is, is gardening and nature for me. I'm a big proponent of us just getting our hands in the soil and knowing that we are a small part of something much bigger, that we get to create delight and beauty and awe um, by being in the garden and by being in nature. And, and that is powerful. That is a form of power, beauty, delight and awe. Mm. That's so interesting because I'm having trouble with my hips at the moment. So, oh. <laughs> Well, I'm sure there might be people within your industry as well that, you know, that are yoga teachers as well or know about yoga and yeah, it's it's a thing. It's mm. a thing. Yeah, we hold it all in our bodies. Yeah, yeah. And so you talked about delight there again. I don't stop and smell the, the roses and and get into that nature as much as I should, or celebrate the wins. Um, mm. I really love the idea that you talk about in the book about creating delight in your life each day, which was so important during COVID. Mm. Um, so you've talked about some of the things you do, sort of on a daily practice. There is there anything else you do to create that delight? Um, well, it is part of, it's funny. Let me just talk about smelling the roses for a moment because um, my husband and I, we actually bought a farm at the end of last year. So I am actually um, stepping into becoming a flower farmer and roses, David Austin roses in particular, are what roses that I love. But I remember many, many years ago, and this is part of my cultural overlay of being English. I think partly as well, being black, not wanting to be seen, trying to keep small, but kind of being seen because I was the only one in black spaces. I remember when I first heard take time to smell the roses. And I was walking along a street in England and I remember seeing a rose bush and I wanted to smell them, but I was just like, but you can't, like people are watching, like what will people think of you if you stop and smell the roses? And it's really interesting. I've had to train myself and teach myself over time that what a gift it is to actually take the time to one, notice the rose, to be able to stop and smell the rose. And I now know as a gardener, I see people walk past my house all the time and they pick the lavender to give to their toddlers in their strollers. They smell the roses. They'll talk about the quince tree or the olive tree. And as a gardener, it actually gives me delight to see people smelling the roses. And that's how we share delight. But I think, you know, that the without apology of the book, Living and Leading Without Apology, is allowing ourselves to give ourselves moments of delight. And and it's not about achievement. It's not, I will give myself this thing, but I have to do these things first. You know, I have to do all the domestic chores and then I'll allow myself to sit down and have a cup of tea. What about if you just sat down and had the cup of tea and then that delight and that self-care then allowed you to do the domestic chores without resentment because you've given something to yourself first. So I think it's something for all of us to just kind of check in, where do I take delight away from myself? Because I feel too busy 
And yet, if we do allow delight into our lives, it actually allows us to have a foundation that is more sustainable than busyness. I really like that, to flip it, so to put it on the top of the to-do list. Yeah, put it on the top (laughs) of the to-do list, 100%, 100%. Yeah. So you talked about apologies there. I'm also an (laughs) over-apologiser. So, you know, in the book you talk about making these really subtle, really small changes to your language that can have such a great impact on your power. Can you talk us about some of those changes we can make to our language? Yeah, that's in the power principle ownership and it's the chapter on the power of words and that as women we have to look at, you know, I talk about overlays a lot as a coach, that we have gender overlays, we have cultural overlays, um, we have ethnic overlays, we have all of these different layers that have made us who we are up until this point. And I come from England, so women apologising and being meek and being quiet is, a, is part of the culture. And so it takes something to step out of that culture. I was just in the supermarket the other day. I turned around the corner. I had a trolley. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't the guy's fault. Neither of us saw each other. I was the one that said sorry first. He didn't even, he did not even bat an eyelid. He just obviously just thought, oh, well, that was a thing. And off he went. Um, and I, you know, I walk and I was like, there it is. You know, there it is. The work is continual. Um, so changing words I found with clients, and this is why, One of the things I love about being the coach is that in some ways it's working with people in senior um, executive levels and working with people at mid-management and working with successful entrepreneurs and maybe women that are at home and also entrepreneurs, the mix of all the things that women can do that I realize over time that some of the common threads are one about women asking for what they need and want, which is my second book, The Gift of Asking, that we think that it is a weakness to ask because we're the ones that are providing all the time. And then the other thing is that we will diminish ourselves in our language, which makes us feel powerless. So instead of saying, I know, we'll say, I think. Instead of saying, in my opinion, we'll say, I think. Instead of saying, in my experience, we'll say, I think. Now, of course, there are times when we think, but generally it is disproportionate the times that we use, I think, to the other times when we are very, very clear around what we believe and what we know. And so it's these subtle shifts But over time, they do start to shift. And it means that we as women, not only do we not diminish ourselves in our language, but there's also the practice of not diminishing other women in our language. You have so many great, what I really love about the book, Kimmy, is this, all the exercises. It's not just, you know, you're not just reading something, but you've got some exercises to, you know, actually create action and and change behaviour. Um, one of them that really resonated with me was the I am exercise. So again, to work on that confidence and and worthiness and the imposter syndrome. Although, is there one exercise or it, which one stand out to you as do you think having potentially the the greatest impact? If you could just choose one, what would which one would you suggest? I think it's I think it's very cruel for you to ask me to choose one. Sorry, I know it's like choosing your kids. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, look, you're right. There are, you know, as a coach, this isn't a book for people to just read. There are 26 power processes that go with each of the chapters. And then there are seven really kind of um, complex, not complex, but multi-layered power processes at the end. And one of them, as you share, Marie, is the I am statement. And that's where we kind of look at taking ownership of who you are. You know, one of the things that I share in the book is kind of I say, I am Kemi. I, I am an English and Australian citizen. I am of Nigerian heritage. I am of fostered stock. 
I am an introvert. I am ambitious, you know, that there is, and I talk about the word ambition and the power of words around what I thought ambition meant. So to own that is a really big thing for me. Um, I think another process that I really, really love is the power of 10 decisions, that when we look at the really difficult decisions or life-changing, they don't have to be difficult, but the life-changing decisions that we have made in our lifetime, regardless of our ages, presence, ownership, wisdom, equality, and responsibility had to have been present because most of those most of those decisions take us being present to what is or is not happening in our lives. We have to take ownership of that. We have to tap into an innate wisdom to know, is this the place I want to be or who I want to be with? We have to know that we're equal enough to make the decision for ourselves and we have to take responsibility for taking the action. So I do love that particular process. And also then the power project, you know, that that power project where you kind of distill everything that you have gained from the book. And that's one thing that I really wanted with this book that I, because this is what happens in a coaching session, right? I am not saying within the book, this is how you need to live your life. I am sharing 14 client stories, my own stories, some research within what it's like to be a woman and gender and race and those sorts of things. And then different things resonate for different women. And then the power project at the end is for you to decide, this is what I want to go to work on first. And this is where I'm going to start. Because one thing I do know for sure is that overwhelm isn't powerful. And so I have tried to create it in a way that is manageable for everyone. And that is not an overwhelming experience, but a powerful experience. Yeah. I'm trying to do like one each night. So. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, you talk about being an introvert and I first um was introduced to you through you facilitating the, the business chicks nine to thrive and I thought wow you just commanded such presence on the stage but later found out you were an introvert like myself so <laughs> like I don't know how you do that on the stage how do you get from an introvert to uh you know commanding such presence I still I still um am an introvert on the stage so I think Susan Cain you know writes about this so well and before that book the book quiet I believe that introverts were shy people that did not like people that did not like others that, you know, wallflower was very shy. And I was reading it for a particular client that I was working with at the time. And I suddenly started realizing, oh my gosh, it's me. It's me. So yes, I used to speak on stage and then I'd go and hide in the bathroom and hope that no one would try and come and talk to me because in me big, and she also talks about actually in the book, I think it's a professor at one of the Ivy League schools who is an introvert, lives in a log cabin with his wife in the middle of nowhere, but his classes have cues out of them every single semester. And what she says is that introverts, when we're passionate about our work, we will show up. We will do what needs to be done and we're 100% present and we enjoy it. And we when we, we don't think, oh, I, I want to get off of here. You can have introverts that don't like, pub, extroverts that don't like public speaking, you know, but I love my work and I love being on stage and because I have an acting history, I'm actually comfortable. I'm comfortable on the stage. But, you know, I've been, had some events where people might ask if I'll have the dinner, you know, the night before the actual speaking event the next day. I am a no to that. You know, and there would have been a time because of worthiness and value and, oh, I don't want them to think that I'm this. I would have said yes, and I would not have enjoyed that experience at all. But once I've made a connection with the audience, and if maybe there's an event going on afterwards and I'm invited, then I am much more likely to say yes to that because I enjoy the connection than I am the kind of small talk beforehand where I'm just exhausted by the end of it. So, Yes, I stand on stage. I speak in front of thousands of people for some events. But then the next day, it's in my calendar, garden time. It's me on my own, 
My phone is turned off. I don't speak to anyone and I'm recharging on my own, ready for the next event. Yeah, I think that's really important is to schedule that down, that downtime yeah. either before and or after. Yeah, so, one, yeah. yeah, 100%. And the thing is as well, and that's responsibility, no one's going to give that to me. Like I run my own business. No one's going to give me permission to rest or mm-hmm. I have to decide that for myself. And it's also why I don't do a lot of speaking engagements. It kind of might appear on social media like that I do, but I don't because I want to be 100% present on that mm-hmm. stage, full of energy, grateful to be there, excited to connect with people. I don't ever want to be on stage feeling resentful that I'm so exhausted. Why are they making me do this? Oh, I wish I could. I just, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure that I don't feel like that. So I make Mm -hmm. sure that I have a lot of exhale time in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And then I know you're a fan of Brene Brown, as am I, as are a lot of our dietitian connection members, um, and you are a dare to lead facilitator. Is there one teaching or quote there's quite a few that I that resonate with me but is there any that resonate with you and why is that yeah um Mm -hmm. definitely there are two quotes of Brene's that I absolutely adore who we are is how we lead that when I first read that was just like because it for me it spoke to what I believe about working with female leaders and it goes back to ownership we have to own who we are you know, the light and the shadow. We all carry shadow with us. That's fine. That's part of being human, but being present to it and acknowledging it and healing it if we need to, or just having it is fine. So for me, who we lead is who we are, I think is an incredible rallying cry for people. Work out who you are, because when you do, that is when your leadership is going to not only empower others, but it's going to ignite you. That's number one. And then the other one is Leaders who live into their values are never silent about hard things. Those are two great ones. Um, I like the one. Um, oh, I'm not going to get it right. When you're in the, um, oh, what's it called? The arena. The Yes, the arena. I couldn't get the word. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, oh, so you mean that. the Theodore Roosevelt? The Theodore Roosevelt yeah, quote that yeah, she speaks yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I yeah. believe as well if you're, you know, I think in some ways in life you kind of want to always be in the arena, you know, whether it's within your intimate relationships where you're willing to be open and vulnerable, whether it's in your work and your career opportunities and just being in the arena, the important thing is who you take into the arena with you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the the people that are going to empathetically be there for you and want the best for you and know that you're scared. And as Brene says, they'll pick you up, they'll dust you off, they'll give you a hug and say, get back out there, I'm with you. Like, yeah. as opposed to never getting the arena, watching life from the sidelines, commenting and judging on what everyone else is doing wrong. And as, you know, as Brene, that's another quote of Brene's, isn't it? The kind of like, if you're not in the arena getting your ass kicked, I have no interest in your feedback. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one I really like. I yeah, second that. Thank you for doing that, for getting that one out for me. <laughs> um, and you did talk about vulnerability there, and this will be my last question, that um, when we spoke during COVID to sort of set up Dietitians Unite, you, sort of, I, you know, I think everyone was sort of struggling and you were mm-hmm. having, a, I think, more one of the more challenging days during COVID and you were really vulnerable with me and, I just think, you know, how important is it for us to be a bit more vulnerable with each other? Um, Any your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's so important. It's part of our human experience. I just, we weren't meant to do life on our own. And that's a story 
that most of us have been led to believe either because of survival. Like I used to believe I had to do life on my own because no one's going to look after me. Like that was a lived experience. And I had to unpick that and realize if you don't let people contribute to you, 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 you risk not being connected to anyone. When we have, especially as women, we have to be really mindful for those that are people pleasers and that are helpers. You have to be mindful that in that helping and people pleasing space that you actually don't have a feeling of loneliness and isolation, because if you're just giving and giving and giving and giving and you're not allowed to receive, you have an an unequal relationship. And what we want as human beings is that we want to have this beautiful kind of osmosis of I give you energy, I take energy, I give energy, I take energy. And so that is vulnerability as well, is that we give to someone, this is who I am, this is where I'm struggling. I think, to be honest, I think we've all moved a lot. I think COVID gave more people permission to be vulnerable. A lot of the work I was doing with leaders through that time was for them to take ownership of their mental health while trying to lead teams that were struggling with their mental health and the uncertainty and the chaos of it all. Um, And, you know, I think that it's kind of given us a really good chance now to be able to say to people, you know, how are you going? No, how are you really going? But not expect that answer from that other person until we have authentically and vulnerably shared how we're going. You know, we have to get in the arena first and then people will join us. But if we're kind of going, why don't you get in the arena? I'll just sit here and watch you. It's just not going to, it's just not going to happen. I think that's a great place to end, Kemi. We're so excited to and really looking forward to having you join us on the Dietitians Unite stage in a few weeks. And before we go, though, can you tell our listeners where they can find your book? Yes, 100%. So if you're in Australia, which I assume everyone is, Booktopia online is a great place to go. They've been such a wonderful supporter of the book. And um, so Booktopia is a really great place to go. Also, all good bookstores. I'm in Melbourne. Readings is my favourite bookstore. So that's another place to get it. I actually did a bit of um, random author signing the other day. So there are some signed books there. But I actually heard another author say, you can get my book in all great bookshops and also some that probably aren't so great. So I'd like to add that too. <laughs> I think I even got mine at Kmart. So. Oh, there you go. Well, I'm not, oh, no, I'm not B- saying No, sorry, QBD. QBD. Oh, <laughs> yeah, QBD have been, QBD and Booktober have been great because it's been like their best-selling book for the month in nonfiction. So, um, yeah, it's been wonderful to have their support. And I thank anyone that chooses to buy the book. And if it resonates, please reach out to me through LinkedIn or on Instagram. But I look forward to speaking and connecting with you all in a few weeks. And I highly recommend it. Like, as I said, I'm on my second second round. I'll probably have a third round. So <laughs> by then, <laughs> it's life-changing. So, yeah, thanks so much for sharing the book with us, Kemi, and for being with us today and sharing your thoughts from the book. Really appreciate it. But thanks so much, Kemi. My pleasure, Marie. Thank you soon. Bye. If you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.